I think coachability is a, a tremendous part of being a good founder. And a lot of people don't talk about it because founders don't want to think about that when they've got this great idea and they're super fired up and they're ready to go. But as a founder, you're going to get so much feedback all the time. Everybody will want to tell you how to do your business and what you should be doing differently or what you what you could be working on or where you should focus. And part of the best founders that I've seen operate are the ones that can take all that feedback in, be grateful for it, but at the same time, know what in their heart they want to follow and what they actually want to implement. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Our guest today is Debbie Kleiman, a true veteran of the Boston startup world. Right now, Debbie is working at Harvard University, supporting faculty members who are starting businesses in the artificial intelligence and machine learning space. Prior to that, she was the executive director of the Arthur Blank Center for Entrepreneurship at Babson College. In her long career, Debbie has also played key executive roles in successful startups. She sat on boards of startups and she mentors startup founders. She's the author of First Pitch, a great book on how to pitch your business when you're a founder. In our conversation, we tapped into her expertise both as a leader, as an advisor to literally hundreds of entrepreneurs, to cover subjects like what are the key traits necessary to become a founder? What does it mean to fail fast? How do you decide when to look for investors and what type of investors are more appropriate for your business? We also talked about how to build and galvanize a community and why communities are important ecosystems for entrepreneurs. As usual, it was a rich conversation. Enjoy. All right, Debbie, it's great to see you. I'm going to start like I always start. Tell my listeners about yourself, where you are now, and the journey that got you here, and you can take as much or as little time as you want. Oh, all right. Well, thanks, Dion. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here and talk about authentic leadership with you. It's definitely a, a topic that is near and dear to my heart. When I look back at my career, I feel like it's a bunch of twisty, turny things that Totally makes sense now, but maybe in the moment it, it didn't, it didn't look clear at all what I was up to. <laughs> but I look back and I'm so thankful for all those ex- different experiences that I've had because they really shaped my, my views and my work and the things that fill me up in life. So it's been a fun journey. Uh, right now I'm at uh, Harvard and I'm working with faculty startups. So I'm helping, uh, faculty led startups, which can be any type of academic technically, so like a postdoc or a a doctorate student or a research associate who's got research in the lab and wants to commercialize it into a startup. And it's particularly focused on AI and ML startups. So really, you know, very timely. It's a space that is obviously changing literally every day right now. And the research our Harvard academics are doing is extremely interesting. And they're really digging in to try and solve hard problems with AI and ML. So it's one of those roles that comes along very rarely because starting something new at Harvard doesn't happen all that often. And then also getting to work with AI and ML startups at a moment in time where AI is transforming everything we do, every the ways we work, the ways we live, the ways we play. 
So it's this combination of exciting, interesting, challenging work that, as I describe where I've come from, it makes a lot of sense because I do uh, find that the roles where I am in service to others, helping them build something exciting, is those are the roles that I love the most. And those are the roles where I feel like I'm able to be my most authentic self. Just a quick thing for the people who are not technical with the acronyms, what is ML? Uh, machine learning. So artificial intelligence and machine learning. And essentially just using digital technology to make life better. That's great. So you mentioned, you know, you've had a lot of very different roles. And at some point, you realize that the roles who are in service of others and helping others build are the ones where you started finding yourself. As you go back, what was the moment when you started realizing and coming into your own and like who you wanted and how you wanted to be as a leader? And maybe if I have an anecdote or like sort of the origin story, if you will. <laughs> the origin story. Well, you know, I started my career after business school doing innovation work in consumer packaged goods companies. So I was became really fluent in the world of innovation and new product development when it came to products, non-technical products, and marketing and really understanding customers is a tremendously important part of that process. And I've always had a curiosity about people, what makes them tick, why they do the things that they do. Uh, and I think that type of role in an innovation group really feeds that, right? You're trying to develop something new that makes their life better or easier. And so really digging in and being curious about how people work and how they behave was a characteristic that made me really good at this job because I could then feel comfortable and interested and, and excited about learning more about a particular area of someone's life and if we could develop something that would make their life better. So that sort of rooted me in this innovation area of like building new things. And so I continued to sort of create in that space roles for myself that really were able to help me do that in a bunch of different ways um, and feed that curiosity I have about human beings. And so I think part of what I found in that path was this curiosity and this interest in behavior and what people buy and why that has really continued to, you know, show up in, in the different choices I've made with my career. So I went on from product development um, in consumer packaged goods into tech startups. So I went from working at Procter & Gamble to a tech startup that was working with customer-focused innovation. So we were using online customer communities before online communities were actually a thing. We were the first to really use that type of mechanism to get customer feedback. So think about it. This was probably back in 2005, 2006, before you know a lot of the social media platforms were really in use by everyone. And, and so we were doing things that were very innovative when it came to soliciting feedback from a company's customers and helping them innovate based on what their customers needed and wanted. So that's sort of, you can sort of see how that fed into this first startup experience that I had. I loved it. The work was so interesting. Again, it was all, all about understanding what people, what drove people, what they needed and why and, and what their lives were like. That startup ended up, I was there for five years. It ended up 
having a great exit to um, a really large ad agency and, you know, continues today to be part of a really large ad conglomerate, global conglomerate, where it uses customers for innovation and, and customer-centric design and development of new products and new services. After that, I went and ran a, an organization here in New England about how digital technology is going to reinvent business and trying to use education and networking and knowledge to help companies here in New England harness digital technology in everything they were doing. And so this, I guess technically it was a trade association at the time, but what it really was, was a community builder. It was a place where this community of digital technologists and people who were really interested in digital marketing and and digital business were gathering and doing things together and learning from each other and networking. And so that really sort of continued this path around innovating in digital business. You're talking about my techs. As somebody who has worked in the advertising space in Boston and actually happily has a couple of MyTex awards under his belt, it's a really important organization for our advertising and marketing ecosystem here in Boston. What I'm really interested about that role is that's a place where you were the leader of the organization, but in order to succeed, you were leading people over which you had direct authority, but the most important people that you were leading, you could not just say, hey, go do that. So what are some of the lessons that you learn by leading in such an environment and that other people who are leading larger organization who are maybe in a position where they have accountability, but not necessarily authority can, can learn and apply? Yeah, that's a really great point. I did have a huge membership organization that those were our those were our people, right? And I think what made that role so fun for me and and really played into my own style is the power of community. The power of community and how it's related to authentic leadership, particularly today where Communities are really the things that power so many innovations, so many companies that are trying to build brands, so movements and, and, you know, advocacy. It's all powered by community today. And back then, the power of community was sort of this emerging idea, um, that could help people get things accomplished and, and do things they wanted to do. But I think social media and the growth of social media obviously made that so much more effective and the reach so much larger and the ability to interact with people from all over the world who were passionate about the same things you were passionate about. So that job taught me about the power of community. And, and through that job, I became a really good community builder. And I think that skill, that that being that connective tissue with a group of people who were embarking on innovation and new things uh, is an important skill and an important leadership lesson. And it I've used it ever since. So, you know, I think people would call me a really good collaborator, a really good connector, someone who sort of sees networks and makes them come alive in service to making something successful. And my leadership position in that organization, running that organization, was very much rooted in being good at that, trying to gather people together, 
a big part of what we were trying to do was transform the Boston ecosystem into one that was really proud of its innovation, that was known for creating great startups, known for creating innovations in a, a multiple of disciplines that, you know, were world-changing ideas, not just, you know, simple apps or doing startups just to flip them. We were trying to create and and live this reputation of the Boston community as being solving hard problems, working hard to change the world um, using technology. So I think creating the advocacy, creating the community behind that was very much constructive for me in, in things that I did later and, and how I lead today. And, and what are some tips that you may have for somebody who's trying to lead or build a community? You know, like what should they be thinking about at the onset? In the beginning of, of trying to get community activity around something that you want to do or, or an idea or a movement or a initiative that you want community backing for and that you want community to power, it requires you know, first really being smart about who your community is. And for me, that came out of my marketing training, right? So I'm pulling forward all this incredible training I had from the consumer packaged goods world and marketing about targeted marketing and understanding personas and understanding you know, who is your buyer it's the same sort of thing when you're building a community, right? You're trying to understand who these people are, what motivates them, what's going to get them out of their chair and advocating for the thing you want to advocate for, what's going to incent them to connect with other people to create this, this network, this net of people who are all sort of rowing in the same direction. So I think a lot of the first step is understanding who your people are and where to find them. Um, so that was a big part of what we did in the early days was try to be out in and very public facing about what we cared about and what we were trying to accomplish and then find people who were like-minded and bring them together in a variety of ways through events, through education, through award ceremonies, like you mentioned. All those things do a great job of bringing people together around a common idea or a movement. You went from MyTechs. I know you you had a little jump back into industry, but then your next role was once again, you know, one of these sort of hybrid roles where you're running an organization, but it's an organization that is helping people start their businesses. So, you know, you've had a chance to talk to thousands of people that started their businesses, probably some wildly successful, some successful, maybe not in the way that we define successful and some who learned some lessons. So if you were talking to someone right now who's thinking about starting a business, what are the first three or four questions that they should ask themselves? Are they willing to torture themselves for 10 years? Because that's what it means. Like if you're going to really start a company and be in this startup game, you got to be ready to have a 10-year commitment to an idea and a concept that is going to change a bunch along the way. But you have to be ready and prepared to literally bust through walls for 10 years straight. And you have to believe in this idea and you have to care deeply about the community that it affects and the buyers of it and what it's going to do to change the world. That's that's literally the, the thing you have to make sure you can do. If you're in it to make money, forget it. You won't be successful. That can't be your first desire when it comes to starting a company. The other piece is, is that today, it's so easy to start a company in the sense of like getting it stood up. 
the, the emotional and the, the brain power stuff is not easy, but the like the physical manual part of standing up a company and using technology and building a technology product is easier than it ever has been before. So you can do that literally in a weekend. You could start a company in a weekend. You can use AI, which is phenomenally sophisticated technology and build a company easily in a weekend. But the question is, is do you have the wherewithal and do you have the deep desire to solve that problem that's going to carry you through 10 years of ups and downs? And if you have that, then let's go. Let's go do it. And I think that's partially why I love this work so much is because I'm working with people who really do believe this. They do believe in what they're building and how it's going to change the world. And it's very exciting for me. And it goes back to this idea of being in service to others because... All I do all day is try and help other people build their companies, you know, efficiently and effectively and in a way that sort of fits their values and what they want to want to get out of it. So while I'm leading an organization or, or helping to, to run a program, it's still about them. It's not about what I'm doing necessarily as a leader. It's about helping them become the best leader, the best founder that they can possibly be. And being a founder of a startup will change you um, in a lot of really good ways and maybe some bad ways. And so there's part of that emotional thing that goes into it too. And I find that all super interesting. You know, going back to my curiosity about people, I think founders are the most interesting group of people I've ever met and they have so many great qualities. And so part of the work that I do is really trying to bring out those qualities and get them prepared for the road ahead. Obviously, you have to have a unique product, you have to solve something that's really important, and you have to have something to differentiate. I think that's advice that you can find very easily. You mentioned the the desire to sort of last for 10 years. What are some of the other maybe less thought about qualities or aspect of becoming a funder that somebody should be thinking about? I think coachability is a, a tremendous part of being a good founder. And a lot of people don't talk about it because I think founders don't want to necessarily think about that when they've got this great idea and they're super fired up and they're ready to go. But as a founder, you're going to get so much feedback all the time. Like everybody will want to tell you how to do your business and what you should be doing differently or what you what you could be working on or where you should focus. And part of the best founders that I've seen operate are the ones that can take all that feedback in, be grateful for it, but at the same time, know what in their heart they want to follow and what they actually want to implement. So there's this element of being grateful for it, being receptive and open to feedback and taking it in a way that is not defensive, You know, not being defensive about feedback and and trying to convince people why they're wrong and you're right. That's an important skill. But then the secondary skill is taking all that feedback in and knowing which piece of it really you want to follow and you want to, you want to do something with. Because you can't do something with everything or you'll just be spinning in circles and you'll never get anything done. I think another very often unaddressed at the beginning or not thought through question is nobody succeeds on their own. Right. And there's choices that you make early on as who you want to have on your journey that play an incredibly important role in the overall success of the adventure, if you will. What are some of the considerations that you should have as you're thinking about who you want to bring along and what should you be looking for in the people that are going to be on your team? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And particularly for, in my experience, you know, I was at Babson College for five years running the entrepreneurship center there, working with student startups and have continued to work very closely with mostly student startups of first time entrepreneurs of different sorts. And I do think that obviously, you know, building your team is one of the most important things you can do for your startup. But at the same time, when you're a first-time founder or you're a very young founder with not a lot of experience in the work world, you can miss certain cues about people and make mistakes about either hiring or who you're using as mentors or who you're taking on as advisors or even who you're taking on as investors. And all that matters. So there's... I think there's this instinct that founders start to hone over time about people, but in the early days, they don't necessarily have it. And it's, it's very hard to, to teach it. It's really one of those things you kind of learn on the job, um, having an instinct about people. But I guess the thing I coach students on has been, you know, make sure you back channel on the people you're working with. They're going to back channel on you. So you might as well back channel on them and it's going to tell you a lot about who they are and how they work. So talk to other people who have worked with them as a mentor or worked with them as an investor or worked with them as a CTO. Uh, You know, whoever you're going to bring into your orbit for your startup is going to have an effect on its trajectory. And you want to make sure you're working with people you can trust, people that really understand the problems that you're going to face that are experienced, particularly if you're a first-time entrepreneur, you want to surround yourself with people who have done it before um, and who can help point out some of the landmines. So I guess making sure you back-channel on these folks, if they have any network at all, which they should if they're offering their services to you, their, their network will reinforce the kind of person that they are. And it's worth doing that work, even though you may feel compelled to like just get moving and you know, you're like, oh, I, I think this person's great. Do it anyway, because you'd be surprised how many people can come off wonderful in the first two or three conversations, but end up, you know, maybe not having the best of motives. Hopefully, that's not very often, but sometimes just not having a working style or or a community that you really want to connect to is is the lesson, and it's important to learn that quickly. You know, one of the things we talk about in startups also is, you know, fail fast. Um, and that comes with people too. Like you need to figure out very quickly if this is a person for you or not. And then if they are awesome. And if not, like move on really fast um, and get going on to the next thing. I'm glad you mentioned the terms fail fast here, because that's one of those expressions that over the past 10, 15 years has become really, really popular, but maybe not everybody has the same definition of it. So maybe we can take a little bit of a break here and tap into your expertise. So tell our listeners, what does it mean to fail fast? In the startup world, everything that you're building, you're right, you're building something from scratch. So everything you're building is based on a, a set of assumptions. And the best entrepreneurs and the best founders are methodical about going through those assumptions and testing each single one of them to figure out if they're true. And so when I think of fail fast, I'm thinking about those experiments failing. So you're going to set out and you're going to do a a set of experiments on the different assumptions that your business is based on. And they're going to be like, you know, two to four week experiments. They're not going to be six months or or 12 months of of a particular experiment. You're going to have to 
set up that experiment so that very quickly you can understand if that assumption is true or false or it needs to be adjusted somehow and then retested. So to me, fail fast in the startup world is really relevant actually to pretty much anything you want to do, right? Because testing and learning is how we do good things in the world. I never think of failure as a bad thing. I think of failure as learning. You've just figured out that that is wrong. How great is that? Like, that's a piece of information you can use to make your startup better. So I don't look down on failure. I think failure is important. But when I talk about failure, I'm not talking about the big F failure when something just blows up. I'm talking about learning something from one of these experiments that your assumption is wrong so that you can then redirect the effort in the right way or try and, or try something else. I love that. You know, there's a definition of strategy that says that strategy is the art of allocating scarce resources. So this is a very easy way to figure out where you're not going to allocate them. I was thinking, and maybe you've seen this too, founders and companies find it really easy to say, oh, these are all the things that we're going to do. But many don't realize that really successful companies actually have a very disciplined process about deciding what it is that they are not going to do. And they're very disciplined in the execution about not putting resources in the areas that they said they're not going to get involved with. So I love fail fast as an organizing principle for this type of decision making. Yeah. And being focused is, is key because as you said, your resources are scarce and your resources are time and money and people and those things can't be squandered if you're all over the place and not focused. You're going to you're gonna spin a lot of cycles that you didn't need to spin. And ultimately, the best startups that I've seen in the earliest days, they pick a lane and they do it extremely well. And they, they satisfy that customer that they've identified as their ideal customer perfectly. They are, they are so in tune with that person's mindset or that, that persona's mindset. And then they can expand from there. But like, if you're trying to do too many things at once, you're going to waste time and resources and not do the one thing that you need to do to get to the next step. And speaking of getting to the next step, a couple of years ago, you wrote a phenomenal book called First Pitch, Winning Money, Mentors, and More for Your Startup. So at this stage, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. Uh, when founders are ready to take their business into the world, maybe they're looking for investors, as you said, money and more. What should they be thinking about? Yeah, thanks for bringing my book up. That was a, a, a phenomenal experience for me in writing it just because I had seen thousands of pitches over my experience and had really found a way that I saw as being very effective in order to pitch your startup. First pitch is not just about pitching for money. It's about talking to anyone about your startup and being effective and compelling in that communication so that people will lean forward and take notice and want to help you. As we've already talked about, building a startup is really hard. It can be very lonely. You need a lot of help. And so as a founder, you're going to be telling people about your startup probably seven or eight times a day, right? You're going to like have that elevator pitch ready to go. Um, not even, you know, we're not even talking about that, you know, deck, that big pitch deck for investors. So the book is really about communication and building relationships because that's what you're doing with a pitch. You're just trying to get the next meeting. 
that should be your main goal when you think about what you're going to put into your pitch deck is how am I going to get the next meeting based on the information I share right now? And one of the things we know is that our brains are wired to remember things that make us feel emotions. And so a lot of times founders will be like, yeah, you know, let me tell you about my startup. And it's just this kind of spewing of facts and and kind of dry data. But what we know about how the brain works is that you have to connect to an emotion. You have to make people feel something in order for the brain to better remember it. It will be more likely to remember something that made them feel something than it would be if you're sharing just uh, facts and data. And and the point of being memorable is, of course, getting the next meeting, but also that ripple effect that happens when other people talk about your startup and what you're doing to other people. So then you start to broaden that network and get introductions to people who can be helpful to you as well. So that, that brain pattern is an important biology reason for being good at communicating and, and pitching. So I feel like with the book, uh, you know, not only does that concept of communicating what you're passionate about working on is important to founders and startups, sure, but it's also important to, you know, internal innovation groups and in, in corporate big companies. Uh, there are lots of people who are pitching their ideas, whether it's budget season and you're trying to pitch for more money for your budget to do something new or a new product development group, an R&D group. So the, the idea of being able to talk about what you're trying to build and, and why and connecting to people's emotions and getting them interested in helping you is actually relevant beyond the startup world. But my book was written for startups initially. But what I'm finding is that there's a lot of people who are just interested in pitching new ideas, regardless of the setting, and they're finding the frameworks and the the coaching in the book really useful. Okay, that's great. So let's assume that we have a bunch of founders who have read your book, they really know how to talk about their business. And now they're thinking about raising funds. What are some of the questions that as founders, they should be asking themselves in terms of the type of money that they should be going after? And I'm talking about friends and family versus angel investors versus VCs, because there are very, very different implications depending on where your money is coming from. And especially among young founders, people are not really aware of what the differences are and what is appropriate for them. Yeah, that's a great point, because the type of money that you seek is going to shape your trajectory quite a bit. But at the same time, you can only seek certain types of money if your company is set up to grow. So the economics of a VC funded company are very specific, actually. Um, our, our culture tends to venerate VC and, and see that as such a, a, an important milestone or validation of a company. But honestly, I would say if you could bootstrap something or do it just on friends and family, you are so much better off doing it that way. You know, would you rather have a, a massive percentage of a smaller company or a teeny percentage at the end of the day of a big company. Sometimes those things can be equal, but more often than not, you're going to find that odds are you're going to build a a medium-sized company and you'd rather have a bigger percentage of that um, than the odds of actually building a unicorn or a decacorn or whatever they're calling them now. Um, So I think, you know, first and foremost, you need to decide if you have the kind of company that or the kind of idea that VCs would even be interested in. And they're not going to be interested in something that can't 
you know, eventually be a billion dollars within seven to 10 years. If it, if it's not a billion dollar idea, then you're pretty unlikely to even get VCs to be interested in it. So it has to be something that's scalable, that has a very large market, um, that's available to it in terms of the kinds of people that would buy it. And, you know, if you just think about those two things first, like, are you cap- do you have a business model that could get you to a billion dollars? And do you have a scalable uh, market that is large enough that will buy the product to get you to a billion dollars? Then maybe you can start to think about VC. And I think it's interesting because a lot of startups are immediately like, yeah, I got to go raise money from VCs. That's not how it works. Like you don't get to VC money until you're, you've got some, some traction, particularly now. I mean, maybe, you know, two years ago, it was a little different where people were doling out money like crazy, but the market's changed a lot. And it's very hard to get VC unless you're building something that's going to truly scale into something very big. Friends and family money is great. Assuming that you've been very clear with those friends and family that they could lose it all. And they're comfortable with that. So I'm very pro writing out, you know, a contract with those people, making sure the expectations are very clear that they could lose it all. And there's no guarantee of a return. And that also they are comfortable sort of not being all that involved in what you're going to do. So if you think your uncle Jack thinks he's, you know, brilliant in this area, that's great. And that would be wonderful if he has domain experience and can be helpful. But for the most part, friends and family tend to just be people who are champions of you. Um, and that does not make a good advisor necessarily because they're not going to tell you what you need to hear in the tough moments. So I think being very upfront with friends and family out of the gate is important, but it's great money because you know it's patient money and it's money that will allow you to, to really get started on some traction. Angel groups are also great money, but they tend to take a long time to get through their process in order for you to get money. And you will have to do a lot of pitches to get there. You know, typically you're going to, you're going to reach out to, you know, 50, 60 different investors before you get a yes and a check. So it's a very long process. And the process for raising money is a full-time job that you're going to have to do alongside your full-time job. So... Uh, you have to be ready for that and be willing to craft a process that's very disciplined, very organized. There's a way to do it. And uh, be ready for a, a very intense, you know, four months where you are pitching six times a week, 10 times a week, and you're getting mostly no's. And you got to develop a thick skin for that. Which goes back to my point about coachability and not being defensive. You've told probably to more entrepreneur in the past... 10 or 15 years than most people. And I just want to go back for a second to the fact that you said that, you know, there's a very specific type of company that VCs are interested in, but entrepreneurship is much broader than that. So what I would love to do is close this conversation with maybe your perspective that can help people who are starting out with the idea, I would like to have my own business, but they either are fixated on the VC model and it may not be right for them, or even worse, they are not starting something because they feel that they don't feel a VC. So what should people who are passionate about being entrepreneurs think about 
in terms of like the whole universe to find maybe the right fit for them that can allow them to start their own business? Yeah, I mean, most of the businesses in the in the world that are run by entrepreneurs are not VC funded, right? It's only a tiny small percent that actually get VC funding of note. I think being entrepreneurial in any setting is a skill that every single individual needs. If you haven't taught your kids how to be entrepreneurial, which is, you know, the spotting opportunities, spotting problems that need to be solved, solving them in creative ways. Uh, those are skills that every single person needs in the work world and any job. So you can be an entrepreneurial accountant. You could be an entrepreneurial dentist. These are all things that are real. It's about a mindset, about how you approach problem solving is what being entrepreneurial is about. Now, being an entrepreneur is, you know, when you and I were in business school, that was, you know, there was a whole group of people that were just small business owners, and now we call them entrepreneurs. Um, and that's great. Those are, those are wonderful, wonderful ways to have a lot of flexibility, have a lot of control over your, your life and your destiny and the kinds of things you want to do with your day. But again, it's, it goes back to this doing lots of experiments. Um, so if you're not ready to leave your, your job, and, and I wouldn't recommend you leave your job if you have a full-time job until you've done some experiments based on what your hypothesis are, is about the problem you're trying to solve, is that, you know, take some time on the side to do some of these experiments so you can learn before you quit your full-time job to pursue something that may not really be feasible or desirable by your target market. It's better to kind of take some time and do a few of these experiments beforehand to see if you really are onto something. And don't spend a ton of money building some technology before you even know the answer to that question. I often tell our, our student startups that you don't even need to build a, a real platform to understand if it's going to work. You can build something in Figma or something with no code tools that will be just as helpful in understanding if you're really onto something in building something that people really want. Yeah, it's interesting. This last observation, you know, I, I work with uh, entrepreneur students at the iLab uh, at Harvard, and I'm always stunned by the first conversation that I have is like, well, we need to get people to build the technology, et cetera. And it's, you know, take a step back figure out what you're trying to do. The technology will be easy. There's tools out there, et cetera. Like figure out what you want the technology to do for you and for your customers before you actually worry about the technology. A hundred percent. I worked with a startup recently this past year that had, before I got there, had spent $140,000 building an app they hadn't even launched yet. They built, they spent $140,000 building an app. And what we realized was is that core to their value proposition and, and getting people to do what they wanted them to do didn't actually require an app. You know, we could build the whole thing on Airtable, which is a free database and, you know, start to generate revenue while we figured out what kind of tech we might need in order to, to, do right by this customer. So I think that happens a lot, actually. And it's a shame because all you're really doing there is funding a bunch of tech agencies that are building products that people don't need yet. You need to know 
really how to solve the problem with technology and what features are really necessary before you go and build something, I think. This actually sparked another question. Do you think that the fact that right now it's in some ways so easy to create something technological that looks like a finished product or something has created a little bit of an illusion that the only thing that you need to have the product is the actual technological thing. Like, you know, I now I have an app in the app stores, I have a product. Do you think that's something that's going on with entrepreneurs right now? Is that something you've observed? I think a lot of times entrepreneurs are like, oh, if I build it, they will come, right? The hard part isn't building the technology today, right? The hard part is getting people to use it. Customer acquisition, that is the hardest part. And that is why there are multiple companies building the same idea, but the ones that really win are the ones that are best at acquiring customers, not the ones who built the best product out of the gate. That's the hard part. Great. And so we diverge here. But before we go to what I call the personal questions, once again, your book is called First Pitch. I'm assuming people can find them in all the online retailers. If they want to find you, where can they come look for you? Do you have a website? Uh, do you want to come on LinkedIn? LinkedIn's a good place to find me. There's a website for the book called thefirstpitchbook.com. Thefirstpitch.com. That's for the book in particular, but you can reach me through there as well. But mostly LinkedIn. I've, I've always enjoyed X, formerly known as Twitter, quite a bit. I'm enjoying it a little bit less these days, but that was always a place you could find me too. All right, let's go to the personal question. The first one is, what is a passion or hobby that you have outside of work? And how has that maybe informed your work life? My hobbies are very closely connected to food. So I love to cook. I love to travel and eat new food. And I love to be with friends and eat food. <laughs> so I feel like my my love of food is very central to the different hobbies. I guess the way I spend my time when I'm not working is generally got some element of food to it. So when we travel, we try to, you know, check out the most authentic restaurants where we're going or take a cooking class for the local cuisine. You know, we were just in Italy in May and we took a pasta making class that was amazing. And so then we came home and we started making our own pasta and it's really fun and social to make your own pasta. So it, it sort of bled into this other part of my life, which I love is being with friends and family. So I guess food is pretty central to the things that give me joy outside of work. Great. We'll come back to that with the last question. But now my favorite question, which is every era has business expressions and cliches that are so overused that they become meaningless. Which is one that drives you crazy? The one that drives me crazy is when people call other people at work a rock star or like a ninja. Um, although I don't see ninja as much anymore, but I still see rock star quite a bit. And I just think that's a silly term for a coworker or somebody that you've observed doing their best. I mean, it's not like some fog machine comes out around them when they walk into the room and there's a bunch of groupies behind them. Like that is not, that is not a good way to describe someone who's excellent in their domain of expertise or experience. Like to me, that's a little, maybe a little demeaning. I know it's not meant to be, but it seems silly to me because in my head, all I see is like a scene from Almost Famous 
uh, about, you know, somebody spiraling down a, a really bad experience and trashing a hotel room when I hear that term. That's a great one. And I, I agree with you on the ninja. The only worse thing than people calling other people ninja is people calling themselves ninja. Hi, I'm Dino. I'm an SEO ninja. Yeah, or a guru. That one also falls in there. You see people on LinkedIn in their profiles calling themselves like an, a guru or something. And I'm like, no. You know, are you in a Tibetan hideaways thinking about this idea? I don't think so. So... Yeah, those kinds of terms are just silly to me. I, I know they're meant to be nice. I mean, they're not derogatory in any way, but they are not at all reflective of how you should be talking about someone who you really admire. Oh, that's great. So final question. It's a question that I call food for the body or food for the soul. And I give my guests an option if they want to talk about a food for the body, a recipe or a drink. And if they go and go to the soul, piece of art, content, book, piece of music, movie that but something that right now it's nourishing to them either you know on a soul side or the food side and if you have two go for two like i said food is so central to how i spend my time outside of work and i do love to cook so i have a few things in my repertoire that i love to make but also to me simplicity is key like i don't i don't go for fancy foofy food especially when i'm cooking it I think it's hard to actually make really simple, delicious things. And I appreciate that. You know, again, when we were traveling, we were in Greece and, you know, they would make grilled fish that was like literally out of the sea, you know, two hours ago. They put salt and pepper and lemon juice on it. And it would be the best thing you've ever eaten in your entire life. And it would just make me see stars. So that's the kind of food that that really gets me. And that's the kind of food I like to cook. So I actually have this recipe for chimichurri sauce uh, that I make all the time. And I put it on everything, you know, fish, meat, vegetables, pasta. And chimichurri is this combination of herbs. It's typically, you know, some parsley and some cilantro. I make it a little hot with a little red chili flake. You use fresh garlic, a, a bit of vinegar, a bit of red wine vinegar, and then you put olive oil and you mash it up into, you know, something that's, you're going to chop up those herbs very coarsely. And, and so it becomes like a pesto consistency. I love that. I think it's delicious. And I, I use it on everything. And, and every time I make it, people are like, this is so good. And it's so simple. And it, it's not a lot of fancy ingredients. Oh, yeah, salt and pepper. Don't forget the salt and pepper. Not a lot of fancy ingredients, but it can really transform what you're eating into an experience. Well, I think you just outlined the secret of Italian cooking. You don't need 200 ingredients. Pick the right four that go together and make sure that each one of them is of the best quality. Exactly. Quality matters a ton. Debbie, it was great catching up. Thank you so much for all your insights. And we'll run into each other probably soon. I hope so. Thank you. Uh, it was really fun chatting with you and catching up on everything. And I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars all the way. 
Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Catania, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And please follow the podcast on any social platform that you're on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle will be at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Saverino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song by Susan Cattaneo. She recorded this with a legendary American band, The Bottle Rockets. It's called Lonely Be My Lover and it's on the album The Hammer and the Heart. Enjoy! <laughs> 